0: Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. I'd like to give a quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners in the Des Moines metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store and you can do takeout for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've also got a catering service. Check them out folks. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. Again, no live concerts this time of the um, pandemic, but uh, you can check out their live stream performances every Wednesday and Saturday. That's Noche, Noce, N-O-C-E, Noce Jazz and Cabaret. Again, welcome to the program today, folks. Uh, great to have you with us. Later in the show, uh, we'll be talking with uh, Maria Philippone about the um, the disturbing incident of, of the Israeli Defense Forces bulldozing significant number of homes in the West Bank. We'll also talk with um, with uh, Mark Edwards about rewilding. What does that mean? And in the last segment of the program, we will do a QA and a on gardening questions with Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Right now, I'd like to welcome to the program Michael Haddock. He's the professor of sociology at Drake University, uh, focused on, I believe, food and agricultural systems. He's been there 12 years. And uh, we're going to talk about the... Um, COVID-19 outbreaks in meatpacking plants, which has been a big topic nationwide. But there is an important component of the discussion that I think has not been included to the extent it needs to, and that's the, the history of the industry. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Sure, Ed. I'm glad to be here.
0: If, so first question, uh, where are we at right now? Are the meatpacking plants open? Some of them still closed? What's the status right now?
1: yeah that's a great question you know it's an evolving situation some of them are still closed and some of them are reopening partially or or maybe even completely um, one of the first to close that was the smithfield plant uh, in sioux falls a pork processing plant that uh, reopened partially at the beginning of may uh, it's still in the process of reopening i believe um, uh, here in iowa the, the tyson plant in waterloo um, that was one that had uh, over 400 positive tests uh 19 tests uh, that is also reopening. It was closed for a time, but it's now in the process of reopening as well. And so, well, uh, what about had,
0: the had, what about the rate of infection in these plants? Is that is that increased, decreasing, stabilizing?
1: Absolutely, it is still it is still increasing. Um, at the beginning of May, uh, it was um, uh, almost five thousand cases uh, confirmed cases uh, amongst meat, uh, meat packing plant workers. Uh, 20 deaths, and those were spread across 19 states. Those figures are from the CDC. They're, um, uh, they were published on May 8th in the Mortality and Morbidity Weekly Report, which is a, a publication that the CDC releases every week. Um, so it's a pretty significant issue.
0: So I, I know they've been under a lot of pressure. The meatpacking plants have been under a lot of pressure to uh, do better by their workers, and there's been a whole range of uh, changes recommended on how they how they make sure that people are protected have those changes been implemented do you know
1: some of them have the cdc did release guidelines those are non-binding voluntary guidelines for the meat processing industry um, they released those guidelines as the scope of the problem became clear and some plants have implemented some or all of those uh, guidelines um, the uh, the tyson plant in waterloo is an example one of the things that they've done is installed dividers between workstations on uh, on processing lines with the idea that that would separate the workers and make it more possible to engage in physical distancing. But I think there's still some concerns that remain about how effective those measures will be and about how widely they'll be implemented uh, both across the industry and, and also within particular plants.
0: So, and part of the reason that people are packed in so tight in these packing plants is uh, they want to, they, they want to bring as many animals through that slaughter system as, as, as quickly and efficiently as possible. And, and so you maximize your space, you, you know, you, you give people specific jobs. I mean, I, my, my guess is most people don't realize like, what the working conditions there are like. Maybe you probably have a better handle on that than, than I do. And certainly most of our audience.
1: You know, that's exactly right, Ed. It's, um, it's, it's kind of a hidden world for many people, except uh, for those people that work in the industry. Um, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, meat, meat processing is a volume industry, particularly in the very large plants that have been centers of, of outbreaks um, in, in the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, In those plants, uh, the the profitability of the plant really is uh, very closely related to how many um, animals are are processed. Whether it's uh, steers or or hogs or or broilers, Um, uh, uh, the, the goal is to move the line as quickly as possible to process as many animals as possible. Um, to turn them from, uh, from living animals into the cuts of meat that, that, we, um, uh, that, that we consume as, as consumers that we find in, in the grocery store. So the, the figures are really astounding. Um, in, in the broiler industry, the uh, industry average is 8,000 uh, chickens per hour. Um, that's really a huge number. In, in, in hogs, uh, in the pork industry, about 1,000 per hour. Going through uh, going through large plants and being and being processed.
0: And we're talking about um, sharp knives, uh, fast moving equipment. Um, again, heavy machinery. Uh, I mean, I mean I, I've, I've heard stories of uh, repetitive motion injuries. Uh, certainly, even more serious injuries, um, the loss of limbs. I mean, people. Th- those are uh, those are difficult conditions to work in, even without a pandemic going on. I guess one, one question related to that is, uh, why do workers put up with such um, difficult working conditions?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a key question. And, and I, I don't think that it can be answered uh, without looking back in the history of, of the meat processing industry. One thing that many people don't realize is that meat processing was not always um, so arduous a job as it is today. It was always difficult work. It was always hard work. But in the middle of the 20th century, um, it was a good job. Uh, you could uh, make a good living uh, as, as a meat processing worker. Um, you could move your family up, send your kids to college. Um, the average wages uh, in, in the meat processing industry were, were higher than those of, of, of other industrial workers. Uh, so it was um, not anything like it is today. And, and a lot of that um, was related to the activity of labor organizations within the meat processing industry, and in particular, a union known as the United Packing House Workers of America, a very influential union around the middle of the 20th century that was successful at securing what were called master contracts with the major firms, uh, ensuring uh, certain working conditions, ensuring ensuring certain wage rates, certain benefits, all, all, all to the advantage of, um, of workers in that industry.
0: So what, what went wrong? Why is that not the well, case now?
1: Yeah, I, I think it has to do uh, with, with three, uh, three historical processes. And these are the ones that I and other folks who have done research um, on the industry's history have noted. So, so one of the key processes, um, and here we're talking about the period of years in the 1970s and the 1980s, One of those key processes was a shift in the industry center from urban areas um, that were kind of union strongholds, like Chicago in particular, maybe Kansas City as well. Um, uh, to, to rural areas. Um, uh, people talk about uh, what's called the IBP revolution in the beef industry. IBP was a a, 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 a processing company. Iowa Beef founded, Processors. Iowa Beef Processors. Right. Founded in the 1960s and really pioneered this new model of building large plants in rural communities. Well, and
0: then Bob Peterson, who I believe was the uh, CEO of, uh, of that company, was also pretty adept at snagging public subsidies and uh, I mean, back in the, you know, before public subsidies became almost a de facto, you know, a, a thing that businesses expected government and taxpayers to do for them, he was good at that. And, and he landed a whole bunch of subsidies that, in my, my, my estimation, what they really helped do was force out the competition and force mm-hmm. out force out a lot of the good paying jobs. Is, is, would you say that's an accurate assessment?
1: Well, that's a, I mean, that, that is the second process, I think, that we need to think about. So there's this shift to rural areas, There's that massive consolidation in um, uh, the beef industry, uh, in the pork industry, not quite as much as in the beef industry, but still very significant. And then also the consolidation of actual uh, processing plants. So going from a larger number of smaller plants to what we have today, which is a, a, a pretty limited number of really massive, enormous plants, um, that have replaced a lot of those smaller operations um, that existed in, 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 in earlier years. And we used to have meat, um, meat
0: lockers used to exist in, in most small towns, right?
1: That's exactly right. And yeah. that's really, really no longer the case. It's something that is um, a, a challenge for smaller, smaller farmers that um, want to process a few animals rather than hundreds or thousands of animals. Um, and um, it certainly is a challenge for workers as well.
0: Okay, so you're looking at a decision by the, by the owners to move the plants away from the union strongholds to rural communities uh, at the same time lending subsidies uh, at the same time lots of consolidation the larger stronger packers buying up uh, buying up the competition and also not only forcing out the other you know medium to big size packers but forcing out the small lockers so that's that's an equation for um, trouble right there in terms of worker uh, safety worker health um, uh, the, you know, the, the best possible conditions for farmers as well.
1: It certainly is, and, and both of those two, um, two processes really did undermine the ability of, um, of labor unions to, uh, to influence the production process and influence the, uh, the wages that were provided for, for this work. You know, so as the, um, as the quality of the work went down as a result of these changes, quite understandably, there was a high turnover in the workforce. Um, And and meat processing companies began to uh, look around for for new groups of people to hire. Um, um, One of the groups, uh, or or several of the groups that um, have become um, key key factors in the meat processing workforce are uh, relatively new refugees in the United States, um, relatively new immigrants in the United States, um, and those groups uh, have historically and are today uh, more difficult to unionize than, um, uh, than more experienced workers um, in, in industrial settings. Well, and they're also, <laughs>
0: they're, they're, they're also uh, a, lot, a lot of immigrant people don't want to call attention to themselves, so they're unlikely to complain about poor conditions.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. If we want to think about the factors that, that pose uh, challenges for, for unions, one is the vulnerability with 100%. That's a big deal. Um, we can also talk about um, the, um, uh, uh, the multiple languages, multiple cultural backgrounds, uh, uh, making it more difficult to, um, uh, to, 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 to organize workforces. Uh, and, and we can certainly talk about, for refugees in particular, uh, there's this uh, you know, expectation that as soon as you arrive in the country, you will find work and become self-sufficient as soon as possible. And refugees are often steered towards meatpacking uh, plants as, right. a, um, as a way right. to, uh, to, to begin bringing in a paycheck as quickly as so possible. So
0: one thing that the uh, coronavirus pandemic has brought into focus is just how bad some of the working conditions are. And uh, it's also caused people to begin to question uh, in, more thoroughly. You know, if, is this the right t- is this the right place to be uh, to be processing meat? Is this is this the way it should work? And a coalition is formed under the guidance of the League of United Latin American Citizens to to basically promote a boycott of Tyson, Smithfield, JBS, the other big packers, and to encourage people either to not eat meat or to purchase meat from local farmers who are not using that industrial system. What what are your thoughts on that that movement?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very important conversation to be having. And I think that this, you know, again, is something that uh, we as consumers don't often give a lot of thought to where the food purchases that we make come from and what the conditions were like for the people who were involved in making those food products. I I do think that um, a consumer-oriented activism really is most effective when it's paired with worker activism. So if you think back to the great boycott back, at, back uh, with Cesar Chavez, and, right. um, uh, that, that, that campaign was one that combined consumers and workers working together uh, to uh, increase their influence. Uh, and I think so part that's of, what I would hope to see in this situation. I think part so.
0: of the challenge here is to com- to com- combine forces with the workers, the farmers, and the consumers. And. And we'll see where this leads, but I think there's a, there's a growing awareness and, uh, and maybe we'll begin to see not just reforms within the industry but movement toward a system that is more sustainable, more friendly both to the workers, to the farmers, to the consumers, to the land.
1: I would hope so, yes.
0: Michael, uh, thank you so much for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Michael Haddock. He's an associate professor of sociology at Drake University. And uh, been there a long time and uh, has, has, has written, most recently wrote a very compelling uh, analysis of the history of the meatpacking industry. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us.
1: Thanks so much, Ed. It was a real pleasure.
0: All right, folks, when we come back from a short break here, we'll be talking with Maria Philippone about the unfortunate, um, most, most recent uh, destruction of homes in the West Bank, in the Palestinian area of the West Bank. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Good food, great community.
2: Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual.
0: Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas-Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Hey folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. Uh, Thanks to uh, Hawk Restaurant, that's Hawk, H-O-Q, restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. And even though they're not open, they're doing takeout. So give them a shout. That's Hawk Restaurant. Also thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right. Welcome back to the program. Later in the show, Mark Edwards is going to join us. We're going to talk about rewilding. We'll also talk with Kathy Burns and answer all the all the questions and answers we're getting. Well, questions will answer. Well, we will give answers to your questions. There we go about gardening and food production this time of the year. But first, I want to welcome Maria Filippone to the program. Uh, Maria uh, is a doctor who has visited many times uh, Gaza and uh, has a good pulse on what's going on in that very troubled uh, area of the world. And I imagine that uh, in a pandemic with, um, with so, I mean Gaza in particular, so many people crammed into such a small space, that's gotta be a really uh, difficult place to be right now with uh, all the uh, risks associated with the pandemic. Maria, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So what, what are you hearing back from people about uh, COVID-19 and Gaza and the West Bank?
3: Um, uh, I hear more from people in Gaza just because I, I think I have more friendships there because I've spent more time there. Um, it's Ramadan right now. So um, uh, it's, they're focused on Ramadan and um, all that goes into that with fasting and then iftar when you break the fast at, the, at dusk. And sending food, uh, a friend, my friend Akram's, um, is sending out thousands of food packets to hungry families in Gaza right now. He has some, um, he has lots of people, um, international donors, uh, journalists, and every and other people um, who donate. And so he gets, he actually puts these together himself, and he uses all local. Ingredients: local uh, meat, local rice and beans, and vegetables, and and cooking oil, and everything. So it it's it, he's it's truly remarkable what he's able to do. Um, but no, Gaza has been on quarantine or lockdown. I, I was there in March, and we had to leave abruptly because of um, COVID nineteen. Uh, we had entered Gaza on March first from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was closed March 4th or 5th. And then we had to leave Gaza March 6th and fly out of um, Tel Aviv March 7th. Um, we were supposed to be there till the 10th, I believe. Um, so we had to leave early and they canceled school right away. And, you know, there's no infrastructure because it's been um, targeted uh, right. by Israel throughout the blockade. So if if COVID were to... Com, you know take root like it has in other parts of the world it would be be absolutely devastating for gaza there's you know four or five hours of electricity a day um the water ninety seven 97 of the water is filthy so they haven't um, had they haven't
0: had that kind of a break uh a breakout of covid yet but the conditions no, but it's such because that, they know.
3: ground everything to a halt because they knew it would be devastating if it went there um there were i believe there have been a total of 14 cases in gaza they turned some of the UN schools and stuff into quarantine isolation centers for people who have been exposed. Um, and the first cases that entered Gaza, um, I want to say in the end of March, early April, were from people traveling from Pakistan back into Gaza and they entered through the Egyptian side.
0: Mm, okay. Well, well, and I know your expertise is more with Gaza than the West Bank. Uh, but I, you, you certainly know a lot more about what's happening in the West Bank than I do, and probably most of our audience. But the, uh, you know, the I was disturbed by the news recently of the village that um, it, it was a, it was where Palestinians were constructing homes and uh, agricultural buildings and, and and wells, and some of those were being financed by international support, and. Uh, you know, one day the Israeli Defense Forces, or I think it was the Israel Civil Administration, came in and posted um, on 22 of those buildings a notice of demolition. And I don't know whether they followed through on that, but, but this is disturbing to me because, you know, surrounding this area where Palestinians live uh, are illegal settlements by mm-hmm. Jewish settlers. I mean, these are not just illegal in terms of, they're, they're illegal in terms of the, the UN's perspective. And so Uh,
3: international law. Yeah.
0: How how is it that you can have these, these, these illegal, uh, you know, developments occurring on land where, you know, the land that's disputed and yet you can have the government come in and tear down Palestinian structures. How, how, how do they get away with that?
3: (laughs) Well, because they have the most powerful country in the world giving them, uh, over $4 billion a year, the U S in financial aid and the U S gives Israel um, political coverage internationally. So of course they can do whatever they want as long as the U.S. is in their corner. Um, yeah, and I, I don't. I know that that village you you told me about. Um, it's near Nablus, which is north of Ramallah in the West Bank. Um, and I I don't know to say with certainty if it if it's been demolished, but it probably has. Um, but anyways. There's lots of um lots of examples, too. You don't have to look very far to see how uh, the Israeli uh, army, the military, and the government, the policies are wreaking havoc on um, the West Bank, mainly and Gaza um, by demolishing these quarantine rocks they've set up to. Social distance in these Bedouin neighborhoods in um, in the West Bank, and also like to do testing. They did, de- you know, they they destroy these these makeshift sites that wait, so who, areas wait, so who, Palestine. Who, who,
0: wait, so who put up these um these were these were testing sites to check yeah. for check for the presence of coronavirus? They were erected by the Palestinian community.
3: Yes, but um the Palestinian Authority in like areas. Uh, A and B, I believe, they uh, have had health care workers and, and whatnot set up different, different, like just in the middle of the road, uh, makeshift sites to educate the Bedouin community and other Palestinian communities in the West Bank about social distancing, wearing masks, and to get tested and, you know, different ways to combat um, and, and avoid coronavirus. And there have been several instances where the Israeli military has run them, mo- you know, destroyed them, and or what, why? Their,
0: why would they do? Tanks to, why would they do that? I, I don't understand that from any point of view.
3: They say they're. Cons- I I don't know. I don't know why hmm. they they don't. I don't
0: know. Now this is the same area again. This village in the West Bank is in an area where ninety percent of the lands. Uh, fall under a certain type of control that prevents residents from uh, growing any crops until they've obtained a, perm- or a official permission from the Israeli government. And so, you know, okay, that's one thing, but then I, I looked into that a little bit further and it looks like those permits are actually almost impossible to obtain. And there's, um, I think it might be a UN Human Rights Group that reports that 98% of those applications have been denied
3: if you're palestinian yeah,
0: yeah so yeah. so you can't you can't you can't for example add on to your 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 home in order to accommodate your your newly married son and his family or right. you can't you can't um grow an extra uh you know a bit of cropland if your if your family was hungry the year before uh this is just crazy i mean i, I don't know why this well is-
3: and you're not you're often not allowed to rebuild after because uh, you would have to apply for a permit if the um, if the Israeli military demolishes invades and demolishes your home or village during the middle of the night, which they do often, you're not allowed to rebuild even if they demolish it.
0: Really? And and, and they uh-huh. and the and their pretense for demolition is uh, can be vague, I imagine.
3: Oh, very vague.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, this is a, this is a tough situation to, to hear about and and what what um I mean, I mean, right now, everybody, everybody is kind of in survival mode. Uh,
3: right.
0: But, what, what can, but one thing that people have in the U.S., at least, not everybody, not me, actually, but a lot of people have time. They, I, I hear from people all the time saying, I'm bored. What do I do? Well, give them something to do, Murray. What, what can people do to help with what's going on in these Palestinian villages?
3: First of all, they can educate themselves. You know, go online, question uh, the way the media reports things, question the narrative. For example, uh, March or May 14th, um, Palestinians all across the world um, doesn't, you know, recognize that as the day of the knockball or catastrophe in, from 1948. 72 years ago, um, last week, was when the state of Israel was um, established and about 800,000 Palestinians were expelled or massacred from their villages to make way for a new Jewish state. So first of all, learn about that. Read about it. There's tons on online right now. Um, you can go to the electronicintifada.net, mondoweis.net. You can go to If Americans Knew. Um, so many different, you can Google different things on YouTube and watch, you know, short videos about, and you can hear the Palestinian narrative, you can hear the Palestinian stories, so you're not hearing just one side, just one narrative.
0: Okay, so... so that's
3: one thing they can do. Another thing they can do is once they read up on it and get a bit more uh, <clears throat> fluent in, in that, that particular issue in the world and realize how incredibly important it is to every other issue in the world, especially when it comes to the United States and or standing in the world, then they can contact their um, elected officials and say, not in my name, I don't want my tax dollars, you know, going towards this, towards this uh, oppression and subjugation of of people just because they're not Jewish.
0: Well, one last question, Maria, is uh, why do you believe the the U.S. mainstream media has been really uh, unwilling to cover these 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 problems in, in any kind of um, balanced detail?
3: Um, I think slowly, oh so slowly, that is changing. However, um, I think it has been pretty one-sided all this time because who has controlled the narrative? You know, people who have controlled the narrative have an interest in keeping it as it is and having one side look, like the whole villain and the other side looked like they could do no wrong.
0: It seems like it's really hard to to paint the Palestinians as the villain. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure there are the, I'm sure there are wrongs committed on that side, but but when you look Certainly. at the when, when you look at the big picture, it's really hard to paint the Palestinians as as the villain, especially when you look at the entire. I mean, pretty much the entire global community has a different opinion than the official U.S. policy and especially the policy of the of the current president.
3: I know. Well, yeah, and I think people are, are changing their minds slowly here. Just last week, there were two senators, um, a Republican from Ohio and a Democrat from Maryland, who introduced a bill um, to this, you know, to say that, it's wrong to criticize Israel and I, I'm trying to find the exact bill as we speak. I can't remember what it was, but it was saying, we can't criticize it. We can't support the boycott divestment and sanction movement. Um, and it was sponsored by a Republican and a Democrat. And it came to light later that the actual author of that bill word for word was a woman who is in charge of the legislative lobby. Um, of
0: APEC. Oh, surprise, surprise. So our, yeah.
3: our, our, our government is yeah. passing laws that are written by
0: by a vested interest. To, yeah. Yeah, yeah, by
3: yeah. political action committees yeah. or or organizations that have, you know, one thing in mind. Well, so. Maria,
0: I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I know you are you got your hands full on so many fronts. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Maria Filippone, about the uh, current situation in Gaza and the West Bank as it is being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, thanks for joining us for this conversation. Can
3: I just correct one thing? I, I see this, this um, bill that was presented and it was to enable Israeli impunity at the International Criminal Court.
0: Ah, okay, all right, thank you. Folks, so when, when we come back, uh, Mark Edwards is gonna join us. We're gonna talk about rewilding Iowa. Stay tuned on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by, Or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining.
4: Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
0: Welcome back to The Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to the local businesses that helped partner with us to make this program possible, and thanks to two of our nonprofit sponsors as well. Thanks to Bold Iowa, fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015, and pushing for non-industrial renewable alternatives. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Learn how to turn your yard into dinner. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Okay, later in the program, Kathy Burns will be joining us for a Q&A about gardening questions that people have this time of the year, as we transition from spring to summer. Right now, though, I want to welcome to the program, Mark Edwards. Mark is with Rewilding Iowa. Mark, welcome to the program.
5: Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, so, um I want to first start, I, I, I know we're going to talk about um, what, it, what rewilding is, but since I think it ties in with the controversial movie that has seen a lot of conversation over the past month, Planet of the Humans, I want to, I want to get your take on Planet of the Humans and, okay, well. and, and just an overall take on it and then talk about how the concept of rewilding might play into that conversation.
5: Okay, great. Well, I, it's a wonderful conversation getting out of it. I know it's been rather controversial and everything, which says that it has value to me if it's controversial. So I'm excited that they put it out on Earth Day. You know, we've had 50 years Earth Day, so uh, I'm glad the conversation is getting deeper.
0: Yeah, uh, and again, a lot, a lot of the film's uh, critics were uh, concerned about it's, it's, it um, criticizing renewable energy. But um, to me, the core message was that uh, we have an overpopulation an overconsumption and an over-industrialization problem.
5: Yeah, I, I, and I think a lot of people I've, I've watched, read all those uh, controversies, I found it an extremely interesting conversation to see how people, t- how they took it, because I thought the title summed it up. It was, you know, the planet of the humans, and it's talking about the human, you uh, perspective we have on things from the human only perspective. And so it got off into the green discussion and the green energy and those various forms and everything. And so the criticism seems to be focused on that part. And I thought, well, they kind of missed the whole point.
0: Yeah. And then, so, and just to, just to branch off to get get into the whole definition of rewilding, I want to tie it back in with the planet of the humans, but the, uh, rewilding most people aren't familiar with that term. Well, what does it mean?
5: We, we focus on that word because uh, that, it, that we always start out with the question, what does wildness mean anyway? Because a lot of people confuse wildness and wilderness, and probably the most famous example is you have uh, uh, although uh, our Thoreau's quote, you know, in wilderness, a lot of people say, is the preservation of the world. But he didn't say that. He said, in wildness is the preservation of the world. And wildness is a action verb. It's not a place. Wilderness is a place. And Mm -hmm. so we tend to think of that. uh, Wildness gets confused in how we're using that a lot. And we think of wildness as something separate from us, something somewhere else, or, you know, you have to go to a big national park to really experience that kind of stuff. And we're trying to say, no, you know, wildness is... In your stomach. That's what digests your food. That's what grows your food. And and so we need to bring that word back to home so that we can apply that uh, perspective to where we live and who we live with and how we live with
0: So what is (laughs) what is what does wildness look like in say an urban context?
5: Well, there is a lot of different uh, levels. I know you're doing your uh, garden in your yard, so that's a form of wildness. We're going from a monoculture, uh, one species lawn, where we eradicate every dandelion, which affects every bee, to growing your food right where you live, right in your yard. And and I think that's a form of wildness. So there's the personal level of wildness, and then there's The reason we're going in the wildness is we want to talk about our trust-fear relationship to place. And so you're saying, well, I can trust my yard to produce the food that I need to eat. And that's kind of the level of discussion we're having on, say, big egg in Iowa. Because we're in Iowa and agriculture is a big thing. And we're talking about CAFOs and and monocultures and diversity and water quality. All those things, you know, tie together in terms of that wildness. We believe, you know, the whole thing is based on wildness. The more you, you know, the the general thing I learned is when I started studying ecology, ecology is, you know, based on the principle that, uh, you know, the more diversity, the healthier the ecosystem, the healthier the ecosystem, the healthier the individual. And we seem to have lost that understanding of that, you know, our future, our place is directly dependent on that diversity of place. And so sticking and with...
0: Sticking with the urban environment for a second here, you mentioned trust and fear. and uh, and I, I appreciate what you mentioned about our efforts to turn a monoculture crop of grass, probably Kentucky bluegrass, into uh, into a productive uh, urban farm. And, uh, and and I think what you were saying was there's a certain amount of trust that goes into being able to make that conversion and trusting that the land, the rain, the sun, the microbes, everything else will produce something of value, in this case, food. But the flip side of that is fear. And to me, it seems that if if people are obsessed with that monoculture, it's an an effort to kind of control the environment to the point where there's nothing unusual or scary or different uh, or out of the ordinary happening. It's all uniform blades of grass from the same plant cut to the same height because at root there's a fear of the of the you know the, the transient nature of existence. It's a fear of the insecurity that comes with uh, with stepping off the edge and living with more trust in terms of you know what what we expect from our natural world. That's my philosophical rant. Mark, am I on base there okay. at all? Well, I, I think the virus uh,
5: discussion we're having here lately is a, a good example of, uh, you know, you can't really control everything. And you look at our history, whether we're trying to control the rivers or the whatever, uh, we talk about climate change, all those kinds of aspects, it's clear that we you can't control everything, you know. Right. And uh, I, I think that, that opens up the discussion about the trust, you know, and we've kind of— uh, we have this false security in that monoculture, which it's clear, you know, is not working. And we have a false security in this worldwide supplying our needs kind of thing. That, you know, in Iowa, we import 86% of what we eat and it comes from an average of 1,500 miles away. We can't even feed ourselves with the most richest soil in the world, yeah. you know? So uh, I, I think we have to get back into trying to, what does that trust mean?
0: Right. Know? And so, and, and so we talk. Yeah. I mean, part of it is, uh, is, is, is um, again trying.
5: We, we, we tried to uh, take our group, and we're trying to figure out how to apply that to Iowa. And I, I, have to start from the foundation. You know that the evidence is showing we're in the highest extinction rate in human history. We're at the most biologically altered state in North America here in Iowa. is, you know, yeah converted. Two thirds of 36 million acres down to just two species, two annual species, and all the things that are required to do that: petroleum, corn,
0: corn and soybeans,
5: herbicides, on and on. So we have to, you know, get back to really where where do we place our trust? You know, so, is it based on fear, or do we trust the world to take care of us, which it always has? So we. So can how do how, you
0: how do you have this conversation with a, a corn and soybean farmer, uh, who? is dependent upon crop insurance and subsidies to be able to make a living on that land and is de- dependent increasingly on, on a scale of, a, you know, to have large, um, you know, large investment in, in machinery and a large investment in land, uh, in order to, you know, produce the highest possible volume of crop, the highest possible yield. How do you have that conversation with them about, um, you know, having, how, how, do you bring, how do you bring home the philosoph- philosophical dimension of trust? to a practical level where, you know, farmers might feel that there's something they can do that would increase the biodiversity, increase the wildness um, right. without damaging their ability to make a living. Right. And, you know, it kind of, it that, that kind of sets you up as as a choice between
5: two things, Coke or Pepsi. You know? And I, <laughs> I think that's, that's too bad because we've integrated into a system that has gotten more controlled by fewer and fewer all along. So the poor farmer is caught in that same system as we all are, whether you live in you know, urban or, or a farm. It doesn't matter. We keep getting caught in the system that, uh, you know, the choices, we only get a certain amount of choices. And that's what we're talking about. Being wild is, is realizing, wait, there is more choices. There are more choices. So we talked to, uh, we learned a lot from the pipeline, working with uh, farmers there. I did personally. Yes. And so from that, you know what I learned is we're trying to so- we're trying to say okay if we wanted to rewild Iowa and we wanted the flow of genetic material to be able to move across the state which you can't really do right now uh, we, we are the roadblock to that flow. I can, well, you you're, you're talking about a example. flow
0: a flow of what of.
5: A genetic material. In other words, where where th- other beings could move across. So say one example would be the uh, lesser scaup duck, the most common diving duck in North America, cannot fly across the state of Iowa, migrate across, without losing so much body weight uh, that it either starves to death or it can't reproduce.
0: Because there aren't now, enough places along the way for it to stop and... Well, the rest. water
5: quality is, is deteriorated so bad that oh, they depend on that better right, water right. quality to feed themselves as they move along. So there's one example, but, you know, it's like we're like the interstate between the deer trying to get from one side to the other. You know, so we have to talk. We've converted, you know, 98 percent of Iowa to human use. So we've got to, to look at a different way. So we're trying to address the farmer's needs by saying, OK, let's look at if we were to take just the five-year floodplains that flood every, you know, roughly every five years average, and you were to take slopes over 9%, which are highly erodible and, and are not uh, economically feasible, really, neither one of those. And we just took just those two categories and we said, okay, you know, we need to help the farmer where he doesn't have to farm it, because he's not really making uh, you know, money off of that farm. He's making it off the the less slopes and the more productive land. So, if you took that, that's 9 million acres of Iowa's 36 million acres. That's one fourth of right. Iowa. One fourth of Iowa could be taken out of production, and it's not going to really make a lot of difference.
0: But you'd have to find a way to compensate the landowners, the farmers, so yeah, that.
5: Right. And we had that in the past, that wetland reserve program right. where you and pay for an easement, and that's what private organizations that have a natural heritage doing, you know, we're talking about different kind of easements on there, just like the pipeline was talking about an easement, right? So for for the wrong thing. (laughs) We're trying to say there's other alternatives here that we could do that would economically pay off in the end.
0: Right. And create more wildness.
5: More wildness, water quality, erosion. It's addressing a lot of different aspects of what that wildness means and what, that wildness is what supports all the other organisms. Mm-hmm. So if you improve the water quality, you're gonna have more things living in the water. You're <laughs> going to have, uh, so it's just, it's all one picture. And that's the trouble when we get into trouble, like your question is saying, okay, we're gonna work just within these little parameters here and you get this two choices. Well, you know, those aren't the two choices that are available. We right. need to look at other choices. And that's essentially what the virus has got us to do. We're now stepping back and going, wait, oh, there are other choices before us. We have to do things a little different here. So, you know, it's an exciting time, and I think that's what that planet of the uh, humans was so good about. It's not just being critical. It's saying, wait a minute. You know, it's it's healthy to question when you only have these alternatives. If you can only produce more energy when you've got more energy and you know what to do it now, Mm -hmm. you know, why are we producing more energy? Why are we... You know, have to have more and more energy all the time. Why don't we talk about the efficiency of the energy you have? That's, yeah, that's 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 where the conversation shifts.
0: Yeah, I I agree, and I think that's the main point that a lot of people tended to miss was that. Uh, and I like your comparison. It's is it's Coke or Pepsi? Well, no, maybe there's a better choice. And I guess that's um that's the the, the the kind of the conversation that I think people have missed. It's not do you do you support renewable energy or fossil fuel? Um, yeah, we, most of us who have an environmental consciousness are going to say, yeah, we support fossil fuel, but it's that conservation element that yes. has to be the, the primary part of the conversation. And then, yeah, again, I think, uh, I, I, you know, I, I want to have this conversation, you know, on, on more levels of these. I think it's, um, it's not just a rural conversation about these corridors. Um, it's not just an right. urban conversation. It's a conversation that really is, 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 is um, both communities, but also multi-state and regional. You know
5: oh absolutely yes and we you know we have, there's a long history of this movement and it's really gaining over like in england and places that have already really you know transformed their landscape they're they are used it all pretty much so You know, they're having a deeper conversation almost than we are. We still think we've got all this Wild West kind of thing going and all this wild lands and stuff like that. But actually, we know by the way species are going and growing and endangered and all that kind of stuff that that isn't really true. You know, we need to address these corridors and connections. So there's been a national movement on the East Coast, West Coast big time and for 30 years. Well, we're still saying, wait, we should have it here in the Mississippi watershed. We cover 32 states in just that watershed right so that's where we should be having the conversation i mean that's where i live i don't want to talk about the east coast west coast about
0: where I live. <laughs> right know? we're not flyover country if we live here <laughs>
5: that, that's right that,
0: that's right yeah.
5: and you know i'd like to see a cougar <laughs> you know i'd like to see some more otters i'd like to see some of those things you okay, know i've been well, out there i spend my time outside a lot and i don't see that stuff, well kathy has know?
0: seen a cougar and i'm a little jealous
5: well, you know, just further you bring that up, in 2007, we worked with Iowa State University and brought all the different environmental organizations and the uh, DNR uh, and the government organizations together, and we said, look, you've got to do a bypass around Des Moines. And I, at that time, I was working with the Water Trails Program and all that with the DNR, and I'm saying, you know, we, we know through Chautauqua and uh, Neil Smith Uh, And all that, you know, there's an opportunity here and we brought in uh, specific landowners in that corridor and said, we developed a thing and did GIS mapping and did this wonderful thing. And it was great. Everybody said, oh, yeah, this is perfect. It would address the cougar coming through downtown Des Moines. It would give them an opportunity to get around Des Moines and follow that
0: river system on up. We'd really rather rather not have them in Des Moines. Excuse me. We'd really rather not have those cougars in Des Moines. I think that's a, that's a plan that everybody should be able to get behind, you know?
5: Well, well, and, and it, it gets back to fear. I mean, they have uh, cougars out in LA, they have cougars in downtown other places. And you'll hear of, oh, what, there's an attack or the dog or cat story or something like that. Right. And it's true, there is always gonna be that interface. And, and, and I look at it, I keep going, you know, the, the Lyme's disease and the ticks is the grizzly bears of Iowa. Now, how come we're not talking about them? Right,
0: right, they're, right. They're
5: much more dangerous, I would say, than the cougar.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. So yeah. it,
5: again, what does wildness mean? How do we relate to it? What are we afraid of? What, what do we trust to work for us? You know, well, that's, right, that's the question.
0: I really appreciate you joining us, Mark. And if folks want to get more information about the rewilding initiative, where do they go?
5: Uh, I would suggest starting with our webpage. It's BeWildRewild.org and Big River Connectivity. Uh, we have a Facebook page, uh, Rewilding Iowa and Beyond. So we're just trying to, you know, have to open up the conversation. We're not saying we know any answers, but we'd sure like to know that we can explore something besides Coke or Pepsi. <laughs> right.
0: Okay. Again, uh, bewildrewild.org, and also the bewildrewild uh, Facebook page. Yes,
5: Mark. Uh, Rewild Iowa. Uh, Rewild, not, sorry, Rewild the name Iowa. Of the Facebook page, Rewild. you can Come up pretty easy.
0: All right, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you. Folks, we've been talking with Mark Edwards about rewilding. When we come back from a short break, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to answer your questions about gardening as we switch from spring to summer. Stay tuned on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community.
2: It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers.
0: Fallon with you here. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, one of our local business partners. That's our grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper, which you can get through takeout. They're still doing takeout service. They've also got a catering service as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. And yeah, Gateway is also continuing to do takeout service. So check them out, folks. That's Ritual Ritual Cafe and Gateway, both doing takeout service. There we go. Hey, so again, welcome back to the program. Uh, Kathy Burns with me here as we're going to try to answer some of the questions that keep coming up uh, either to us personally, on you know messages we get, sometimes on the Iowa Vegetable Gardening page. Uh, we see good questions all over the place. There's no such thing as a dumb question, although a couple of them come pretty close. But uh, <laughs> let me start with one that's near and dear to my heart, potatoes. So, Somebody was asking, is it too late to plant potatoes? You know, I I, I don't know. I've never planted them this late. I'm I've never s- ever planted them on any day except for Good Friday. So I'm not sure. I think it might be pushing it.
4: I used to plant potatoes not on Good Friday.
0: But yeah, but life end before of May? Ed,
4: um, maybe, yeah. I'm trying to think back in my days of uh, gardening uh, out in the country and I, I believe that I would still plant potatoes around this time if I hadn't gotten them in already. And and I, I I, remember why that was. I was teaching high school, and school was still in session, and I had no time to do the potatoes at, on a Good Friday.
0: So you have planted them late May or maybe even early June?
4: Yes. And um, they early, worked. Late May, early June is pushing it. Um, but I'm also seeing some answers some of the responses that other people are giving on the uh, Iowa Vegetable Gardening. Is that the name of the page on mm-hmm. Facebook? And other folks are saying that they are A-OK with potatoes planting this time of year. So right. I uh, would there be anything different to consider?
0: I would say the important thing is to try to plant them on the the um, waning phase of the, of the moon. Kathy doesn't buy this stuff, but I, I'm, I'm going to go with my old farmer's almanac. And again, that's the reason why you plant them on Good Friday because... That's the right part of the moon cycle. Anyway, but, oh, all
4: right. And I won't argue. <laughs> I won't argue with that. What else we got? Well, another question, and this is the one that um, uh, that, that I think a lot of people are, are thinking of right now, is um, I walked outside. This was on the Iowa Vegetable Gardening Facebook page. I walked outside of my apartment building today to find the lawn care service spraying down our lawn with something called triad. He sprayed the little spot and we had, where we had dug up our garden. Now I'm absolutely terrified to plant anything. Are there suggestions to go about planting in pots this year? I'm afraid my children and I would be around the chemical. Um, the the fellow who did the spraying said, "Give it a few weeks and it'll break down in the soil." But he's still not comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would uh, I would definitely be worried about it. I yeah. I think if you have other options, you need to use them. I don't. You know, I don't really, frankly, it's a trust issue. I don't trust what the chemical makers and the people who no, use them no. say.
0: I, I would say it's not a trust issue. It's a it's a scientific fact issue. There, there, you know, the the chemical companies don't want you to know that this stuff is bad for you. But there's there's also you mean the companies do, lie. Some do. <laughs> yeah, tobacco industry, tobacco <laughs> industry petroleum <laughs> industry, chemical companies. The, this stuff is not good for you. Uh, there are plenty of examples of it affecting pets, small children. Uh, there's, there's great information from the General Accounting Office. This is the US GAO. This is not a partisan group. This is not a, even a progressive group. This is a, an official government agency. And you should look at the work they did years ago analyzing lawn chemicals and also analyzing how chemical companies, lawn care companies, withheld information from the public. So, yeah, if, you're, if your plot does get sprayed I'd be worried about that. If it's the neighbor's plot, you know, I'd be concerned about drift. I uh, would try to talk with the neighbor and see if we can get, you can get them, as we've tried to do here, to not spray when the wind's blowing your direction. You know, again, the stuff is not good for you. It's not good for plants. It's not good for animals. So, and that's, that's, not, that's not my opinion. That's documented. And check out the general accounting office information.
4: That's good. And I just asked a question that was slated for you because I only have one page of the questions, Ed.
0: Well, well, that's that's just wrong. How do we do that? I,
4: I, tell me what. Tell me I'm, what our next. No, you're you're asking the next question. Well, my
0: next question is about artichokes. Um, well, it's not my question. Somebody asked me. They they wrote and said, "Okay, so everything I grow, I'm, I'm, I can grow everything, but I've never had any luck with artichokes. How do you do artichokes? Well, we do artichokes. Uh, I like to say it's partly because in a past life I was an artichoke farmer." On the Mediterranean, probably Italy. I'm not sure. It could have been France, maybe on the border. But um, how exotic! <laughs> you know how exotic. But more practically, more more uh, more more helpfully, uh, I, I've been growing artichokes for I think now over 20 years, mm-hmm. and so I've done some experimentation with them. My favorite variety so far has been the Green Globe. I've tried Violetto, Romanesco, um, Imperial Star. There's a new one called Northern Star, which is supposed to be potentially uh, you, potentially you could keep it through the winter in northern climates uh, so that's interesting what you need to remember about artichokes is they're, they're a biennial like a carrot cabbage other plants they want to take two years to produce a crop so it's important to try to you know get them to think that they've already gone through their first winter so we start them before Thanksgiving
4: So in other words are we smarter than artichokes
0: Are we smarter than your average <laughs> artichoke <laughs>
4: We are by far the largest artichoke are by far, smarter than
0: the average artichoke. Uh, I, I tease my, my my relatives who say artichoke really funny. Artichoke. I have some I have some relatives out there who talk funny. Anyway, um, you know who you are. But um, the uh, <laughs> the bottom line is uh, they need to be uh, started early so they can be brought through a winter. And one thing, it's really important not to have too heavy of a, a soil mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time, if you start them in November, by the time February rolls around. It should be time to start getting them to believe they've been through a winter. Give them, uh, you know, put them in a cold room. Not, not too cold, 40s, maybe, lower 50s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Um,
0: we have a guest bedroom. Sorry, guests. Um, <laughs> when the artichokes <laughs> are there, you, you don't want to be there. It's 40 degrees in there. We um, can't have guests now anyway, no. but maybe well, by no, this no. time next year. So, so you get them to think they've been through that winter. Less light, colder temps, and then by the time you plant them, and I, we try to plant them early, mm-hmm. mid-April, late-April. This year, uh, and then you know, it, it should work. No, I don't know. We don't get the we don't get huge buds. We've got buds that can you know fit in my hand, and I have big hands. You do. So and
4: <laughs> and um, the bigger the buds, the more butter you can. Yeah, hold that's the bottom line. Is remember
0: artichokes exist as a way to eat butter. They're they're a conduit for butter.
4: And infuse a little freshly chopped tarragon, or if you have dry fine, but infuse that tarragon into your butter. The important thing though Amazing. is getting them
0: started really early. And tricking them into thinking they're, they're they've been through their first year.
4: Uh, speaking of tricky, a question is: I'm planting. Uh, this is from a first year gardener saying, "I'm planting strawberries, asparagus, broccoli, garlic, onion, cantaloupe, potatoes, Brussels sprouts, pole beans, peas, yellow squash, <laughs> zucchini, lettuce, carrots, cherry tomatoes, and grape tomatoes." Wow. I was hoping to plant those as starter plants rather than seeds, but do any of these do better just putting the seeds in the ground or do they have to be seeds Uh, or can they be done as seeds? Anyway, um, my first response is you're taking on a lot and good for you, I applaud the intention. That's a lot and if this is your first time gardening, um, I wish you all the luck, but I I would maybe pick half of your favorites of those and start with them. Uh, some of those can still be started from seed, um, direct sowed, direct sowed right into the ground. Um, it's a little late for peas. Yeah. Squash. Yes. Zucchini. Yes. For sure. Uh, lettuce. It's, it's, it's okay. It's getting a little late. Carrots. Okay. Um, the tomatoes, no. You have to, well, unless they're seedlings, the, yeah. You have to get the seedlings yeah. and plant those from plants. Asparagus, you don't even plant from a really seed. You, you buy a, a start for those. We're going to
0: have to leave more time for this segment of the program yeah. because we only got through about a third of the questions, maybe a fourth of the questions. Again, thanks for tuning in today, folks. This is Ed Fallon. Kathy Burns, my guest with uh, Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Kathy's also one of the uh, co-producers of the program, along with Sherry Herdina. You can check out the the, the show on our our website, fallonforum.com. Also, this segment will be on Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in.